Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Ancestry with Lucy Luce and Lily Love. This episode is going to be about food and food sovereignty. It's also going to be a two-parter, so be sure to stay tuned for part two. Our second episode will be connecting with our food and going back to our ancestral roots and our traditional ways of eating. You're probably wondering, what's food sovereignty? Because I didn't really know what this word meant until recently when I listened to another podcast called All Relations. Yes, all, all my relations. All my relations. There you go. Yeah. I've never heard of food sovereignty either until you introduced me to them. So please do explain. <laughs> so there are very many versions of uh, and definitions of what food sovereignty can mean. And um, I found an article that we'll have to link. But according to Via Campesina in 1996, they kind of defined food sovereignty as the right of each nation to maintain and develop its own capacity to produce its basic foods respecting cultural and productive diversity, a region to to produce its own food culturally. Then in 2002, the People's Food Sovereignty Network redefined it and gave it more of a, a weight, I guess, so their definition is that food sovereignty is the right of peoples to define their own food and agriculture, to protect and regulate domestic agricultural production and trade in order to achieve sustainable development objectives, to determine the extent to which they want to be self-reliant, to restrict the dumping of products in their markets, and to provide local fisheries based communities the priority to manage the use of and the rights of aquatic resources. It does not negate trade, but rather it promotes the formulation of trade policies and practices that serve the rights of people to safe, healthy, and ecologically sustainable production. <laughs> That's a lot of words. It's a mouthful for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I guess it. they said all of that so that it kind of goes over all the things and also gives a place for trade as well. Because I think before, I mean, when you look at the nation's own right to maintain the food, so that kind of pushed away trade. So this also is saying that trade is good. And if it's done in a safe and healthy and ecological way. Mm -hmm. exactly. um, so really, this is like saying it's the right of people to be able to eat their cultural foods, to grow it, and also find it in outside places mm -hmm. as well. This is very important. The U.S. is so like boxed food. Uh, fast food yes that foods that aren't real foods that our bodies aren't even created to process yes the fresh food aisle is just a very small section and the rest of the store is all packaged foods mm -hmm. you really need to just shop the outside mm -hmm. the inside of the grocery store is not real food exactly and you there have is to search good news though i recently found out yesterday actually that 
Maine is going to be one of the first states that recognizes food as a human right and will find a way to allow anybody to have access to food. So we've got some changes happening here. It's crazy that it's 2021 and they're just now recognizing that food is a right. <laughs> we live on food. You die without food. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And then only one state so far. A very small state too. <laughs> it's important to discuss our own uh, food experiences because uh, ironically, Lucy and I have in common specific health issues that forced us to rely on ourselves to feed ourselves better, cook for ourselves better and find resources to help us learn more about this. Right, we had to reevaluate our whole eating situation and we've both been able to manage our separate illnesses by using our diet. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to tell you about our own experiences with that and our own uh, food journeys as well. And Lucy, please. Oh, you want me to go first? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I have ulcerative colitis. I was diagnosed with IBS at 19 um, because at that time, it was um, kind of unknown. Uh, um, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome, which now it's just kind of like a, a diagnosis that if you have any kind of irritable bowel symptoms, they're just going to say that. Um, so they get put me on a ton of medication. I would just like try something and then they would see how it worked for a few months and then Eventually, I realized that fast food, like I was eating a ton of fried chicken, lots of Wendy's hamburgers. I was a college student, so I was just living off of fast food. And Mm -hmm. I realized that when I ate like those processed meats, that it was exasperating my symptoms. So I stopped eating so much fast food. And, but I continued to have symptoms and I eventually, when I was about 20, between 20 and 21, I was diagnosed officially with ulcerative colitis. And then I was put on medication for that. And I had talked to the doctor about how I knew that the fast food was causing the problems. And he was just like, it's fine just take the medicine and you can eat whatever you want. Like I was really expecting him to be like, you need to change your diet. I mean, I just told you that my diet was making the symptoms worse. And then he's just like, no, just take medicine. Um, I started taking the medicines and then I started to have to take different medicines to offset like the um, side effects of the medicine that he was giving me. So it was just really strange. I'm having to pay for medicine that gives me side effects. And then I have to take more medicine so that I don't have the side effects. So despite him telling me that I didn't have to change my diet, I decided to switch to like a vegetarian diet because I was eating a lot of fast food meats. And that's what I was noticing. 
So I was like, oh, it's the meat that's causing this. So for about six years, I was like vegetarian, vegan. That helped for the most part. I even went off of my medication eventually because medication, even when I had insurance, was still very expensive. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, I don't even remember. It was like over $100 for like a month's supply. And how many different medications did you have to take? I had to take like a suppository. I think I had to do that like once a day. And then I was taking like pills. And I think that was just one pill that I had to take, but it was like once or twice a day I had to take the pills. (laughs) It caused constipation. So then I had to take like fiber and um, metamucil. What you were diagnosed as it's already like a complication of bowel movement. Yeah. And I'm sure it caused a lot of irritation and Mm -hmm. it's a very painful situation to have to deal with too. Yeah. And I'm sure you were still working at the time. Yeah. I I had started going to culinary school for baking and pastry and was like living off of pastries and things that we made at school. I was also working on the weekends too. It's um, like mucus and blood. Mm. Ulcerative colitis means ulcers on the colon. So I've heard of stomach ulcers, but I've never heard of ulcers on like the actual intestines. Yeah, there's different phases. So what I have, it's just at the end of my colon. But there are some people who their whole colon, because you have large um, intestine and the small intestine. Yeah, some people have ulcers all up in all of that. Oh my goodness. And that just sounds so painful Mm -hmm. to have to deal with that on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with. Because it's also an autoimmune disease. So -hmm. when I have flare-ups, it's more than just digestive issues. Like once the inflammation starts in my colon, then it just spreads to the rest of my body. So when I was around like 25 or 26, I didn't have insurance. I got very sick. I was completely vegan at that time because I was getting so sick and I was like I just need to try to be as healthy as possible but with being vegan I was eating a lot of soy products I was eating a lot of wheat products I was eating a lot of corn and lots of grains to make up for the protein that I wasn't eating through meat products Mm-hmm. So, um, I got to a point where I had like um, arthritis feeling. Like, oh my goodness! Um, Would I you say to, it was almost like a fibromyalgia kind of situation? Because yeah, it. like I've heard, I've had people, or I've known people who have fibromyalgia. That's what it sounded like. I was mm-hmm. going through. I was just very fatigued. My joints and everything were just exhausted. Just playing um, ukulele, like mm-hmm. my hands would cramp up. Oh my and um, I started using Arnica on my joints, which help a lot. But like I would go through 
a tube of arnica in like a month or less oh um, just like trying to get through life yeah and you use your hands for everything and you were still going to like pastry school too uh, by like, that time I was out of pastry school but I was working um at a catering company so still yeah. handling food which is yeah. a lot of work <laughs> yeah with your hands mm-hmm. and also I was in a band so I was playing music too and I've always painted so like everything that I do is in my hands yeah um so yeah um I was yeah I was working two jobs because I was also doing a um, canvassing job where I was like having to walk around neighborhoods and uh, try to get somebody people to sign petitions I mean you felt it in your hands did you feel it in your feet as well I think I was just so tired. I think my whole body was feeling it. I was just exhausted. I remember that that whole period of my life, when I look back on it, it feels like I'm remembering like a montage. And I just remember walking a a lot. And then when I was at home, I was like on the couch. I didn't want to do anything. Yeah. You used all your energy just to get through the day. Yeah. Because I was feeling so bad and I didn't know what to do. My mom started like helping me, sending me books and stuff. And she introduced me to a book called When the War Within by Floyd H. Chilton with the help of Laura Tucker. And through that book, I learned about inflammatory foods. And I started keeping a food journal to document symptoms. And I switched to gluten-free Because that talked about like the benefits and how inflammatory gluten can be. So I was like mostly vegetarian, but started eating more like a pescatarian, introducing more like wild caught fish because those have a lot of very healthy um, anti-inflammatory properties. I also learned like um, the yolks of eggs have inflammation inducing properties during that time I also switched to only eating egg whites there's a lot of stuff like that that I learned just about what foods cause inflammation and what foods help prevent it but I still was not feeling like 100% at that time I was going to the bathroom up to 10 times a day oh my goodness yeah and it was like not even normal bowel movements I've heard of other people who've had symptoms like I was having and they went to the hospital like I should have gone to the hospital Mm -hmm. but not having insurance and then like my financial situation I was just like I don't have money to go to the ER or even to like a doctor I think my mom also introduced me to the specific carbohydrate diet. So a woman named Elaine Gottschall was a biochemist and a mother of a child who had ulcerative colitis. And their doctor, his name was Sidney Haas, he had created the specific carbohydrate diet in the in the 1920s to treat celiac disease and so Elaine uh, Godshall wrote 
the uh, book called Breaking the Vicious Cycle, Intestinal Health Through Diet. It was basically like her and her daughter's experience and how it healed her daughter. It's very similar to the anti-inflammatory kind of diet, but it's a little bit more. It has meat, but it needs to be like local and wild caught and you make your own yogurt so like normal yogurt that you buy in the store usually like stays in the temperature where the bacteria is like eating the milk for about six hours Mm -hmm. but in the the recipe that um the breaking the vicious cycle you would put the yogurt um at the temperature for like 24 hours it's basically like all that bacteria is digesting the milk for you already mm-hmm. so this was like I switched my diet completely from like tons of grains and tons of vegetables to like meat and no grains and um, it's also an elimination diet for anybody who has digestive issues I would recommend doing an elimination diet and that's basically where you severely limit your food like the types of food so the way that this diet starts is you eat only ground beef you can have chicken but you make like a chicken soup so you have like the broth and the chicken carrots apples and beef um, gelatin because that's really healthy and good for your like stomach lining you start very limited and then you add in like once so I ate like that for like a week until my I could feel my everything kind of like healing and then once you start feeling better then you start adding in other fruits and vegetables you would only add something in like one new thing at a time so that you give yourself three days of eating something new and then you see how that makes you feel and Mm. if your body reacts to it and then that way you know if that food is good for you or bad for you everybody's bodies are different I thought that I was vegetarian and even that helped me for a while, but then my own body changed. I crave vegetables, but broccoli, I can't eat anymore. Yeah. Um, seems like the very fibrous foods are very hard for you to digest, huh? Yeah. I can't do a lot of fiber. My body needs a lot more protein now. Yeah. That's pretty much my story where I'm at now. I still follow that diet pretty closely. I've had one big flare-up that lasted uh, about a year. I've been eating this way since 2013, so it's been like eight years now. Now I can kind of tell. It's also like stress-related, so many of my flare-ups will start with being really stressed out, but then, you know, when you're stressed out, you start eating bad anyways. It's really mm-hmm. hard to be stressed out and be like, I'm going to eat healthy. Not if I'm stressed thing. out, yeah, I'm like eating chips and stuff. And 
and my body's like what are you doing <laughs> we're freaking out we need healthy foods <laughs> and, and then it fights back pretty much yeah yeah and then yeah I'm like getting punched in the gut literally by myself mm-hmm. well I'm glad you found something that definitely keeps those flare-ups at bay yeah and that you seem to be doing pretty well so good for you (laughs) (laughs) so now tell me about your experience and journey i was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure which is basically kidney failure in 2011 and i was 20. what's weird is there are two leading causes of kidney failure first one will be diabetes I don't have diabetes, but it does run in my family. And the second one is high blood pressure. And that's pretty much what I had, extremely high blood pressure. A normal blood pressure reading is like 120 over 80. My blood pressure readings were well over 230 over 120, dangerously. That's insane. They would tell me I was headed for a stroke or heart attack at any moment. And what's even more strange is you need protein in order to help your illness. Too much protein caused my illness. Mm. You know, growing up Mexican food, Mexican background, constant stable was meat, chicken, carne asada, pork, and a lot of beans, a lot of rice, a lot of uh, tortillas. Not as many vegetables. If it were vegetables, they were potatoes, asparagus, and, you know, a salad too every once in a while. But those have a lot of potassium, which is also too much is not good for the kidneys. So what I basically had was a overload of protein. And what happened to my kidneys is think of your kidneys as a filter, which they pretty much are. They filter out all your toxins, everything you put in your mouth, it has to go through the kidneys. They create your urine. They remove toxins from the body. They clean the blood. They balance your hormones, vitamins, minerals. I mean, it's one of the hardest working organs in the body. Mm-hmm. You know, your every other organ has like one job. The kidneys have about like eight different jobs. Mm-hmm. The mind being overloaded with protein. This is how they described it to me too. Like think of your kidneys as a pool filter. And so much passing through that pool filter eventually gets clogged. And there's nowhere for that protein to go. So my kidneys were so overloaded with protein that it started seeping out through other sides. Like it started seeping out on the sides and everything, leaking protein. The only way it could eliminate is if it bled out of me pretty much. So I was bleeding a lot too. And they just didn't know why. I went to so many different doctors. I went to one doctor though, Finally, she took a look at me, took a blood draw, took a urine test. And at first she was like, okay, so I'm going to give you this prescription and you're just going to go home. And at that moment, her nurse pulled her out of the room. So it's something to her. And then she came back in, took that prescription away from me. And she said, you're going to go straight to the ER. There's a bed waiting for you. And I was just like, oh, well, what's going on? And she without hesitation, said, your kidneys are failing as we speak. I had no idea what that meant. I was rushed to the hospital they recommended, which was UCLA Santa Monica. They took an immediate biopsy and sure enough discovered that the kidneys were indeed failing and fast. 
Mm-hmm. A normal kidney function is 100%. Mine were at 28%. And wow. that's just not good. Uh, I went in the hospital weighing 125 pounds. They had to take away all my protein. They had to give me foods that were low in potassium and low in sodium. My whole diet changed overnight. I was in the hospital for about four days, but I went from 125 pounds to 97 pounds because Mm. they just didn't know what to feed me. You could say I was not happy about that. You take away my carnesada, like how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) I was feeling very distraught. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to live with something like this? Like just so many questions, you know, Mm -hmm. given a diagnosis like this. And there are two types of treatments for kidney failure, one being a kidney transplant and one being dialysis, which is when you're plugged into a machine and they remove the excess liquid from the body as well as cleaning the blood manually because that's one of the most important jobs your kidneys do. Apparently my kidneys were so bad that the doctors didn't even want me to do dialysis. They wanted me to go straight for a transplant. And the best way to have it happen right away is if somebody willingly donates to you. It's not an easy task. Mm -hmm. And what's even more upsetting is California has the longest wait for organ donation, especially for kidneys. It's about a 10 to 12 year wait. Whereas any other state, it's about four to five years. So that was just, I mean, I tried looking everywhere. Some families, some family members, had volunteered to donate, fell back at the last minute, changed Mm. their mind at the last minute. Some friends came forward with it. And then the testing found out they had health issues, so they couldn't do it Mm. or, you know, had certain rules before donating. So I was just like, you know, don't worry about it. Like I need this as soon as possible, Mm -hmm. moving on to the next candidate. And then some people just get scared and change their mind, which is understandably so. Yeah, I mean, you're cutting out. What if they're going to need a kidney later? Exactly. It's a very, very big decision to make. I thought, you know, I don't need a kidney transplant. My dad found a secondary opinion, and his name was Dr. Habib Sadegi. His institution is called Beehive of Healing. He's very in tune with the body. Him knowing exactly what was wrong through my blood work and him listening to my history of what may have caused this illness he prescribed vitamins and books instead of surgeries and medications and one of the books that really changed my life was called the gerson therapy by charlotte gerson for me it helped me turn into a vegan overnight like i could not put this book down i was so intrigued by how important nutrition plays a role in any illness, he even prescribed like, you're going to read this book and you're going to start juicing and you're not going to drink water. All your water is going to be in the juices you make. Think of it as a powerful, magical water. So it's water with an overload of nutrients that the body needs to help cleanse that excess protein out to flush it out. So I was making my carrot juice every morning, my beet juice, which was blood cleansing, my celery juice, my cucumber juice, anything I could think of I juiced it and it helped me tremendously I was feeling better my function actually went up 10% in about um, a couple of months so I knew like okay I'm on to something here mm-hmm. 
And so I really stuck with this diet. I still am vegan today. It's been about 10 years since my diagnosis. There was a time in my life where I was living away from home, was living on the beautiful quarter acre property where our landlord grew his own food, so many different varieties of fruits and vegetables. That's when my function had went up. I was the healthiest I've ever been. And sad day where we had to move out suddenly. I had moved into a six bedroom house with 12 people. And it was like a party house, lots of alcohol, lots of cigarette smoke, lots of junk food. I had no access to my fresh food from the ground. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. I was unable to work at the time. My function went from that 34% to 8%. Mm. Because of the surroundings I was mm -hmm. enduring, it's, it's crazy. You really are who you surround yourself with. And so and the food you eat. Exactly. My body especially was so used to the food I was able to just pick right then and there, which is the best food you can have. It's not on a truck for who knows how long, you know. Mm -hmm. I finally checked myself in into hospital because I knew if I was going to continue like this, I was not going to survive. And what's even stranger is throughout all this, I never felt any symptoms. I'd never felt any pain. Like, oh yeah, it's definitely my kidneys, you know? I just felt off, very lethargic. It was just a really weird time. They call kidney disease the silent killer because you don't feel anything. Your body yeah, just gives out. Yeah, exactly. When I checked myself in, I had to start dialysis overnight. I was terrified out of my mind, of course, because I was hearing, yeah, like, you know, they take your blood out of your body, run it through a machine, and then they put it back into your body. I'm just like, what is going to happen to me? I'm so grateful for the woman who, whose room was right next to me. Her name was Cindy. She heard me crying hysterically. I was not looking forward to that first dialysis session. So she asked the nurse, you know, why is she crying? And the nurse told her she's about to start her first dialysis. She was there for dialysis and asked if she can share a few words with me upon starting it. Because when I asked the nurse, what is it going to feel like? She said, it's going to hurt. You're going to feel a lot of pain. You're going to throw up. Like just the most horrible things you could hear. It's like the worst thing you can say to somebody for the first time. Yeah. Doing a scary thing. <laughs> it's horrible. You're yeah. going to hate it. It's going to make you feel horrible. Yeah. I was crying even more. That's when she's like, let me talk to her. <laughs> she comes in, beautiful woman, platinum blonde hair biggest unforgettable smile she told the nurse like leave us you know closed the door behind her and taught me everything I know today about the machine as she called it you know this is your lifeline she's like for one you're not going to feel pain because I had uh, at the time a dialysis chest port so they just take the blood from the tube already connected to you she told me to get to know the machine know your numbers like how much they're taking out how long you're running your blood pressure readings are very important. You know, make sure you know which is a good blood pressure reading, which is a bad one. And she said, and more importantly, know who's putting you on. If you don't like the technician putting you on, ask for another one. Don't be afraid to speak up because this is your life. Only you know how this feels. They have no idea. They're just doing their job. And it changed my life. Started that first dialysis session. 
I was like, okay, I'm cured. I can go home now. Like, <laughs> it felt amazing being ha- having to be cleansed for the first time in who knows how long because with kidney disease, it's a very slow process in disease to get to where I got. It took about 12, 14 years to get to finally seeing those symptoms of like blood and lethargy and, you know, just overall like an un- un- unbalanced feeling inside. Mm-hmm. And upon starting dialysis, that's when I really started to understand this illness more. And my goodness, it is, it's mind blowing how severe this disease really is. And there are so many people dealing with kidney disease. You just have no idea because the dialysis industry is a huge moneymaker. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it in these terms there are more people with kidney disease then there are breast cancer, prostate cancer, AIDS, and HIV combined. Wow. That, that is how many people there is. And you don't see a green ribbon around anywhere. It's all mm-hmm. pink. Huh. So. Yeah. Like everybody, when I tell them that you had kidney transplant, everyone is like, how old is she? Like mm-hmm. nobody, like nobody thinks that someone our age could need a kidney transplant like it's not a known thing and what's causing it is the processed foods that we're constantly eating Mm. you know the salt how much salt is in processed foods to give it that long shelf life I was like one of the youngest in my dialysis center so I knew there I had to do something to get the word out, like this disease is not only affecting older people, it's affecting the younger and younger generations mm-hmm. and we have to do something about it. So I started trying my best to educate the patients in there, like asking what do they eat? You know, what do they drink and everything and try to give them tips. It's like pulling teeth to, though to let tell people, oh, you have to change the way you eat if you want to feel better because people eat food for comfort, you know, mm-hmm. like. And they're set in their ways. Exactly. It's really hard to get, like, especially an older person who's been eating a certain way. And they, well, it's also like, if you just say, be a vegan, then there's so many, like, preconceived, like, ideas of what a, a vegan is. And, like, I know here in Arkansas, like, when you say vegan people are like oh that's what those California hippies do (laughs) I ain't no California hippie and so they immediately are like no before they even understand Mm -hmm. uh, what it even means or how it will help them even when you mentioned being vegan you were eating a lot of soy products and wheat products Mm -hmm. I couldn't really consume those because of how much protein is in it so I was strictly relying on fruits vegetables beans grains and especially nuts and seeds which thankfully have all the protein you need people just don't know it because they're like how does this little thing have so much mm-hmm. protein you know that's what I mostly eat like foods to, that I rely on are dark leafy greens and if you think of an elephant or a gorilla they only eat vegetables and they solely eat greens and they're some of the strongest mammals on the planet so i definitely rely on dark leafy greens collard greens dino kale 
you know, any, all kinds of kale, actually spinach, uh, Swiss chard, but having to relearn everything was very hard. And even when I would eat wheat products, you know, once in a while I had to get something fast, make a burrito or something. I noticed in my complexion, a rash would break out instantly, like all over my nose, my cheeks, my chin, and I would feel so bloated. And so I too had to resort to gluten-free for my body to not have those breakouts. It would last for so long. And I knew gluten was a huge contributor to that. I was on dialysis for seven years. Dialysis has been around for a long time, but the treatment itself hasn't really changed in 30 years. And what's even crazier is back then, I want to say like in the 50s, they had to do death panels to see who can be on dialysis and who couldn't. And if you didn't have your $10,000 for treatment, you were done for. So that's insane. Yeah. And the panel range from like a basic housewife, a construction worker, normal people, a teacher, businessman, and like a nurse. And they had to see who would live and who would die pretty much. But it wasn't until Richard Nixon came around, which is probably the only thing he did. He passed Medicare for all for people over 65 and those who needed dialysis. So when I started dialysis in 2014, I had Medicare and I'm still eligible for Medicare. So I was able to have health insurance to keep me alive pretty much as I went through these treatments. And I forgot to mention that three year span from 2011 to 2014, the doctors gave me six months to find a transplant or I wouldn't survive. But because I changed my diet, I was able to prolong that little function I had for three more years where I had to change environments and it just plummeted so fast. But in that time frame of the seven years I've worked on elections, um, I've worked on three elections, the SB 349 in 2017, which would have helped um, the nurse and patient ratio because it's always understaffed. A lot of patients die on dialysis because it's a very strong treatment. There was another campaign called the Yes on A campaign in 2018, which would also help with the ratio of patients and and even like clean the institutions better because there were a lot of roaches, a lot of flies, like it was very messy. Oh, and where they were getting dialysis? Mm -hmm. Because they're so old. These treatment centers have not changed in the last 30 years. One woman who helped put that on the ballot passed away right before the election. So she wasn't able to see mm. how huge of a difference she made. Unfortunately, that didn't pass. SB 349 didn't pass. There was another one this past 2020 called Yes on 23. That was to have a doctor in all facilities at all times, which is extremely important. I mean, you have hospital do- doctors in hospitals 24-7. Why can't a doctor be in a dialysis center which is treating people with a very serious treatment, their blood is coming out of their body, be there 24 seven. And these facilities, there are people, there's, I've never seen so much blood on the floor. Like all All the the things that you just said, like it's blowing my mind that those are not things that are already in place. Yeah. Cleaner facility. How did that not even pass? Mm -hmm. You want to know how? 
the industry makes four billion a year, and they used millions of dollars to persuade the patients to vote against their well-being by saying, oh, no, it's bad. If you vote yes, then facilities are going to have to close and you're going to have to get your dialysis at a hospital. They did this every single election I was working on. Same excuse, no evidence to back it up. Put fear into you, even use that money to buy merchandise, hand sanitizer, masks, tote bags, blankets to say, vote no, vote no, vote no. People don't read anymore. So on the ballot, it said, not only do you have a doctor in the facility at all times, but you get reimbursed from your insurance company for, for being overcharged because, like I said, dialysis industry is a huge moneymaker. People voted against their best interest because they spent a whopping $120 million on false propaganda. So yeah. it's all in the money. We lost again. I was so distraught every election I would cry because it's like I would put in as much work as I can, but I'm only one person and there are millions. Who yeah, are you don't have millions of dollars to make throw blankets. Vote <laughs> yes, exactly. The best I could do was just hold a sign the whole every dialysis treatment. Oh, yes. Like ask me why there was one time where they would put no and I would take down the signs and they would put even more up and take down all the signs. And then sure enough, they literally covered every single wall, even on the ceilings, like no, on like it was like an attack against me because I was the only ones doing something right. I definitely know the greed behind this industry. And I, I tr tried my best for seven years and I knew I wasn't getting anywhere. And the last thing I could do was get a transplant. So in California being so long, I had to go to another state to get it. It's crazy. A dialysis patient's lifespan is three to five years. I was on it for seven and I'm surprised I was able to even survive this long because I felt myself like slowly disintegrating. Like mm -hmm. it was hard to open my eyes in the morning. I had no energy, like couldn't cook for myself or anything like that. And so finally signing up with the transplant team because I was on it for so long in a different state that pushed me ahead of the line because I had those extra credits. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even get started on how complicated the dialysis diet is. Because first being diagnosed, I had to watch for protein, sodium, potassium. Starting dialysis, I had to watch for sodium, protein, potassium, calcium, and phosphorus. And that's in everything, everything you eat, especially the kind of food that I eat. So learning, same as you, I had to have a food journal. I had to mark down everything I ate, how much I ate, the daily value percentage. It was a lot of work, but I'm glad I did it. I even have like my journal still of writing everything down in alphabetical order, starting with like the fruits and the veggies and the grains. Definitely a lot of work that I'm sure nobody would do. It taught me how to cook for myself. It taught me how to read labels and to stay away from processed foods as possible, which vegetables to eat, which vegetables to stay away from. For example, high potassium foods include potatoes, mangoes, tomatoes, avocados. So I had to switch to, you know, cucumbers, greens, zucchinis, squashes with very low potassium. And finally, getting not only a kidney transplant, but a double kidney transplant. So I received two organs at once. 
I can't even explain how amazing I feel. Not only that, but the diet, you know, you can have whatever you want now. And I still stick to my vegan diet, but I'm so grateful to finally be able to have like mashed potatoes as much as I want to be able to see both sides of the spectrum, like the dialysis side and now the transplant side. And if I can now, I would scream at the top of my lungs to all kidney patients to get the transplant. As scary as it is, as much medication as it is, it's so worth it because the dialysis industry only cares about profits where the transplant wants to keep you alive. And you had mentioned your books. I had mentioned one book, The Gerson Therapy. And throughout this process, I was able to work with the dietitian. I got to be a part of this book called Plant-Fed Kidneys which is a scientific book that explains why plant-based is better for the kidneys than any other. It was really fun to be part of. I got to start it, the book with a poem that I wrote about being on the dialysis machine. Oh, you wrote the poem? Uh-huh. That's I awesome. Did. And then on chapter eight, which is like a lucky number for me, I also have my whole story in there. <laughs> so, and then another great book too, which I recommend... For those who don't have kidney disease, just somebody trying to make better choices for their diet is the Whole Food Plant-Based Diet. And it's written by Alana Pold and Matthew Letterman. And I was grateful enough to be their nanny for a little bit. So they gave me this book and they were so sweet enough to sign it too. And it gives, it talks about why it's, you know, a life-changing lifestyle plan because it's not a diet it's a lifestyle mm -hmm. and it also includes easy recipes just for overall longevity I think eating as much as fresh foods as possible is the way to go you know whether you're a vegan or whether you need the protein for yourself there are some people though how you mentioned that can't have the fibrous foods mm -hmm. but there are other vegetables that can help too you, it just has to take time to find them and do the research on which ones best and not only which ones but how much to consume in order to prevent your flare-ups or an upset stomach or anything for that matter right for me when I have a flare-up it's better if I cook things like raw vegetables are more harder to digest and more fibrous really so when you cook something like a carrot Think of how like hard a raw carrot is versus like how soft a cooked carrot is. And I mean, it's just so much easier to digest. So there's like things like that, that people probably, like I didn't even think about the digestion of cooked foods versus raw foods. I was just like, a vegetable is a vegetable. <laughs> and it's the same, no matter what, how you put it into your body. But but then after I started, like, that was part of the, um, the specific carbohydrate diet was um, to start out, everything needs to be cooked. Um, I can't eat a lot of seeds either, like even in a cucumber, because those are super fibrous. Since they're so hard, when they go down your digestive system, like they can just like scratch up those like sores you've already gotten and oh that can cause things to open up and yeah it's, you have to like core the seeds out if you're gonna eat them mm -hmm. yeah right now I'm doing pretty good and I I've been eating cucumbers 
and just eating the seeds. I usually peel them still. There were times when I would cook grapes and peel grapes. You would cook grapes too? Yeah, I would cook grapes and then peel them because the the skin will peel off pretty easy once they're cooked. But do you yeah. make like a jam or you just eat them like that? I would just eat them like <laughs> the naked grapes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. If I wanted a potato on dialysis, I had to soak it overnight and then boil it and remove the skin as well to remove the potassium. But it was a lot of work. If we wanted to, you know, keep our symptoms at bay, my hat goes out to you for having to not only take your health in consideration, but do the work to figure out what works best for you because it's, it takes a lot. Yeah, same. I didn't know a lot of the stuff that you talked about. You had talked to me a little bit about some of that stuff, but I didn't realize how crazy it is like I don't even know another word like crazy intricate definitely yeah it's just it's a lot and you were so young I guess we both were about the same age when our Mm -hmm. uh, symptoms started which is interesting it literally is a journey because it's ups and downs and goods and bads and experimenting yeah lots of experimenting when you were talking about like your weight loss I didn't mention that but I was so just bloated from the foods that I ate Mm -hmm. that um, when I started eating anti-inflammatory foods and then I switched like completely from eating like tons of grains that were making me bloated and then I went to eating like meat and vegetables and fruits only then I lost 20 pounds like with within a few months yeah okay well now that you know a little bit more about us and our insides (laughs) um maybe a little bit more than you thought you needed to know (laughs) Um, If you've listened this far, then thank you. So next episode, we're going to dive deeper into connecting to natural foods. We will dive into more about how to read nutrition labels. Also, water is very important and how to be able to distinguish good water from bad water. And in order to prepare you for next episode i do have a list of documentaries you can check out to kind of get you started on this journey with us that has helped me and i hope it helps you too the first one is called the gerson miracle then there's forks over knives which are by the doctors who wrote the whole foods diet book there's food inc what the health fat sick and nearly dead and there's also hungry for change So be sure to check those out. You can find them on YouTube, on Netflix, on Amazon. And we are very excited to share part two with you. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with us. Also, if you feel inspired to tell your history of how food changed your life, you can send your stories to Lucy Luce. Lily love at gmail.com. <laughs> we'll be sure to include the email in the description as well as these documentaries and the books that we found helpful. All right. Thanks. We love Thank you. you for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah. For part two. 
<laughs> Adios. Bye.